This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. Lee Bartlett is probably more aggressive than you are as a salesperson. I was in Manchester, England, speaking to a company there, and he found out that I was there, and he insisted on coming to meet me, and I didn't have time to meet with him, but he asked, and he asked, and he tried, and eventually he sent his book, the number one bestseller, to me as a way to get me to look at the book and review it and to engage with me. And he's aggressive and he's determined and he's persistent and all of these qualities make for an effective salesperson. So I read his book, which is autobiographical. It's his experience selling into the financial services industry. And there's so many lessons in there. And so many people are so timid where Lee is courageous that I brought Lee into the arena so that he could share with you his mindset. And it's the mindset that comes before the skill sets or the toolkits and really determine your results. So this is my friend from London, England, Lee Bartlett in the arena. Lee Bartlett, how are you this morning? I'm well, Anthony. Thank you, you for having me on the show. You know what I love about uh, you Brits? Go on. You're so American. <laughs> we're, we're so much alike. I mean, I think when I go over, they think like, you're so American. You're such a cowboy. You're always busting chops. And then you spend any time in England and you find out nobody loves taking the piss out of somebody like a Brit, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I got called snarky yesterday by someone in in the states. I'm like, what on earth is that? <laughs> I mean, she said she said sarcastic, and I'm like, well, get used to it. I mean, <laughs> it's I'm British. The currency of our language. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's no question. It's the currency, and I love England, and I have so many friends there, and it's such a great place. And I can't imagine another country that we could have this kind of relationship with. It is, it's like going home, be, being in England for me. I'm so yeah. comfortable there. Yeah, it's great. You are a theater fan, aren't you? Didn't I, I read that, that you come over and I, check I, out the musicals? My son's in theater at Denison. I went and saw him last night in a play called Sweeney Todd. So I've taken him to a lot of theater. Actually, he's taken me to a lot of theater. He's decided what is worth seeing, and then he's taken me to see things I would have never seen had he not uh, insisted. So yeah, I like it. I've taken him to some theater in London and a lot in New York. Yeah, super. Good good super. thing. So I've got six big questions for you. And I pulled some of uh, what I did is I deconstructed some of what's in the book. Okay. As to attributes that allow someone to be more successful in sales than other people, which you were. So I want to talk about the rule sets that I picked up from your behavior and part of your mindset, because that's the interesting part to me is what yeah. do you believe? And the first thing that I want to focus on is I want to ask you this question because it's something that you have innate, and I don't know why you have it. It's something that happened to you in your childhood, something that happened long ago, but you have a burning desire to win. Uh, and I put that in my book under competitiveness, and I got some flack for talking about sales as a zero-sum game and talking about, I've called it a blood sport before because somebody wins and somebody loses, and there are stakes. 
I mean, there are consequences for losing. But how important do you think it is to have the desire to win in your formula for success in sales? So winning being, uh, you know, I, I guess we'd have to quantify winning. Winning to me is is achieving kind of a personal goal. And my personal goal was always to support my family, maximize my earnings, you know, and then that trickles through to every every other aspect of sales. But I guess if you wanted to go deep, if we're talking mindset, my parents were workers, real workers. They were a big inspiration to me. My mother was a nurse. She used to work nights. And my father was a fishmonger. He used to, to have a fish round and he used to work very, very long hours all day, manual worker. And I remember being younger thinking, you know, kind of how unfair that was. So I, as I grew, I began to look at work with a very working class mind, a very grafter mind, and a motivation to kind of make everything right, if that makes sense. I might be going, I'm going too deep here. So I, no, I kind of, when I, you know, when I started working, it was about working as hard as I could and as earning as much as I could so that my children, let's say, or my life wasn't, didn't have the absence of, of maybe two parents. So, so I, not that they were absent, but, but they worked so hard. Right. So I, I was very honored to have that as a role model and have that work ethic, which I still have. And to be able to use that mindset to apply it to sales. Now, I never wanted to be a salesperson. I never, when I left university, I went into sales. And what really appealed to me about selling was the performance-related pay model. So I just knew that I would work, you know, as the guidelines of my parents were, harder than yeah. anybody else. So, yeah. so that, that was what it, it what, meant to me. What age did you start working? Straight after university. Well, I worked all the way through. I mean, I worked since 14. I had paper rounds. You know, I was yeah. a worker. Did, <laughs> so you, <there> is no- <laughs> did you feel a sense of adversity in your childhood? Was money an issue in your family? Not that- Yeah, we weren't. Yeah, yeah we, we weren't, didn't come from a, a wealthy family. And I guess that plays a part. But yeah, I, I think that's probably, if I'm, if I'm talking off the cuff here, if you're asking me where that hunger came from, I think it probably came from there. Yeah. The second question I want to ask you builds on that. And I think that you're wired in some ways like I am, which is I just have an enormous capacity for hard work. I I like it. And people are like, well, when do you take a break? And to take a break for me would be doing more work. That's the thing that I enjoy. I enjoy doing it. And I got wired that way as a young age. And I tell my kids, you know, the adversity that they have is not having adversity. And it will end up being <laughs> what causes them to actually have real adversity. But you yeah. have a tremendous capacity for hard work. And one of the things that I recognized in your book that I want to point towards is that you looked at other people and you immediately recognized that you had a greater capacity for hard work. And so I want you to just talk about the benefit of just being able to outwork other people. Because I still, when we're talking about competition, you have competitors that, that your competitor has the top 20% of their sales force too. You know, and I, I love this Facebook meme that always goes by that says, I don't want to be better than anyone else. I just want to be better than I was yesterday. And that's nice, but you also have to yeah. be better than your competitor is today. And a lot of people just allow themselves to be outworked. It's not that they don't have the skills. It's not that they don't have the ability to create value. They just aren't doing enough work. When did you recognize that your capacity to work harder than other people was going to allow you to move up really quickly? Day one, before I even began. My boss, I think I say in the book, my prospective boss said to me, 
this is what is required of you. You're going to be selling magazines. And the average person makes 55 calls a day. Well, within 20 seconds, I just, well, I immediately couldn't believe how small that number was. And I thought, 55 <laughs> calls a day. I mean, surely I could do 200 if I really push, you know. So that, that was my mindset. It was, I instantly saw the opportunity. And then he, he correlated the call to sale ratio was about 2% on average. And he gave me my earnings and I instantly tripled it. So I just knew that I had the capacity to, to earn more. And if that meant I stayed from 8 a.m. till midnight every day, so be it. I didn't question it. It meant nothing to me. I was never really interested in, and I've never really been interested in working hours. I've always sort of been interested in waking hours, <laughs> if that makes sense. Right. So I, I, you know, I just, I go and I go and I go. And that's, that's just part of my personality. And I too enjoy it. Tell me what you would say to somebody who has all the skills, but just isn't working hard enough. What do they need to change? Well, well let, let's look at it another way. Who would win this, this sales race? Somebody, an incredibly skillful salesperson who worked at 50% capacity or an unskilled, pseudo-skilled salesperson that worked twice as hard. In my opinion, it's going to be the second. I always bet on the person that's throwing punches. I, right. I always do. So, like I just over right. time, over time, the, yeah. the, if they're willing to outwork you, over time, the skills will come. Yeah, that's and, right. And you even see this now with SDR reps, right? I just did a research paper on this. And one of the, I was talking to a, an SVP of sales, global SVP of sales, and they were saying, you know, our, our account execs, our experienced account execs make two to three calls to a prospect and then give up. Our SDRs make eight or 10 or as many as it takes to get a hold of them. So their efficacy is higher. So, it begs the question in my mind, if I was the SDR, I'd be thinking, I'm just going to wipe those account execs out. I'm going to learn what they know faster than anybody else. I'm going to differentiate myself and I'm then going to apply my work rate to getting that job down. So, you know, I see, I saw opportunity, Anthony, where other people just saw hassle. Yeah. But to me, I just saw, it was obvious. It didn't even, didn't even question it. I think it's tougher for people that didn't get wired that way for the, with just the capacity for hard work. I think a lot of people go to work, but they don't go to work. They just go to work. They show yeah, up. Yeah, that's there, right. But they're not doing what's really necessary. So let me lead that into the next question because I sure. want I want to ask this in a way that I think we can benefit other people from. And I see salespeople who get a quota and then they gripe about their quota and they complain about it. Why is your real goal different than your quota? Why are these two things two very separate ideas for people who perform better than people who are are lagging? Well, the quota is what somebody I don't really know has given me. <laughs> right. so, so, so you could put your finger in the air and pick any number you want out because it hits with your company target. Whereas I always took ownership of what I believed I could do. So I did my manager's job, the company's job for them, for myself. So I looked at a territory, I assessed it myself. I, I decided what I could earn out there. And then I had a personal goal and, and it, it always had to exceed the company quota. So I knew that I was working towards, let's say I wanted to earn 10,000 pounds, for example. I would look to the market. I would see the holes. I would decide how I was going to do it. I'd create a strategy and I'd just do it. I wouldn't necessarily ask for permission and I wouldn't necessarily be worried about whether there were call statistics or anything else attached to it because they always sat below the requirement of what it was for me to do. So I, 
worked to an intrinsic personal goal and I made sure that I, worst case scenario, I exceeded my, my target. Right, right. Best case scenario, I yeah. hit my target, which was far more challenging. It's it's interesting <laughs> to me see people to see people do this math and to think, well, they gave me that quota, so it must be high. And then I ask people <laughs> how much they want to earn, and what they want to earn is in excess of their quota, right? And, and so I think, can you do that? And they say, I think I can. And then, then why do you care about the quota at all? Because it is arbitrary, right? It's what the company might need from you, but what you need from you may be completely different than what the company needs from you. Yeah, and, and, and it's respectful, you know, and it's all aligned. It's aligned with the company. The company want more money. I want to earn more. So, you know, sometimes I, I, I take a bit of flack for saying, well, it's just, it's, it's, all, it's all about you. Well, it's not about me. I, I, I work to maximize my earnings and that happens to be correlate very neatly with the company targets. They want more revenue. So, it's all aligned. It doesn't mean that you're self or company focused over the customer. It means nothing to do with that. Right. Nothing to do with it. That's an important Absolutely point to make. disconnected. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, nobody's more customer focused. It just so happens if you want to be a great salesperson who exceeds their target consistently, the number one way, the primary way to do that is to be customer focused. No, no, no question about it. Yeah. <laughs> so the more you focus uh, on what you earn, the harder it is to earn. And the more you just focus right. on how do I create value for other people, the easier it is to earn. Yeah. They have all the money in their pocket. Yes. So you, you look at the market and, what, and the holes of what the market needs and what the customers need. And that then back correlates to what you feel you can own. It's not the other way around. Right. If that makes sense. It does. So, so so to me, it, it was never a mercenary approach. It was just obvious. Right. Let me ask you, because you did something that a lot of salespeople are unwilling to do. And in some cases, it's not unwilling as much as if they don't really have a framework for thinking about it. But you spent a lot of time figuring out your clients' industries. So when you're selling, oh, yeah. you, you learned their business. Yeah. And I want to ask you, what's the value of studying your client's industry when you're face-to-face -face sitting down in a conversation with people who aren't used to having somebody who actually has done the homework sitting across from them? That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> really great. It's on so many levels. In terms of confidence is to who you are, you know that you know what they know. When you can balance the power in a C-level pitch where you're, you are seen as an expert and on a level with them, you have a far more in-depth conversation. You have a more frank conversation. You are able to respond as opposed to remember what you're doing. You simply walk into the presentation pitch. We all hate these words, but you walk in and you have an energy that, that says, how can I help you? Tell me how I can help you. I, so, I'm totally not offended by the idea of pitching. Me either. I Me either, but I, I, some are. So. I, I, I don't get it. I have clients and even prospective clients who I will just say right out of the gate, let me pitch you. And they go, okay, pitch me. You know, And they're not offended by the pitch. I think that the order that you do things, like if you come in and the first thing you do is pitch, maybe not. But in some cases, maybe so. I don't think there's one right answer for that. But I, I do think the knowledge of the customer's business, when you're pitching, you're connected to something that if you've done your homework, you know something about them that they're going to resonate with the idea. Like, you get me. You understand me. I'll take it a, a stage further. It comes down to respect for me. I would feel a little bit embarrassed and ashamed to sit in a board level pitch with 14 people hammering me 
and not it's discourteous of me to not ask to ask for their time and not be able to add value to them right so it, it's not that i have to motivate myself to learn this stuff to me it's it's moral <laughs> if, that, if that makes sense so i did this preparation because out of respect, I wanted to, to, to understand who I was talking to and, and add value to their business. So it's absolutely key to, in my opinion, to put that in. And, and I, you know, I used to do a lot of beauty parade periods. So there would be a bunch of people lined up next to me. You'd have 45 minutes. Now I've walked into rooms, Anthony, boardrooms, and they've gone, I said, Look, I'd love to ask you a bit about the deal, you know, and how I can help. They just said, just get on with it. Mm-hmm. Just get on with it. Well, now you're pitching. There's no discovery. You now have to deliver a concise raise a sharp message that adds value and demonstrates very quickly that you're on their level. And when they can see you're on their level, the energy, the dynamic of the room changes, the defensive defenses drop, you have an open conversation because I know something they don't and I want to help them. I had this question the other day, you know, what, what about pre-sales discovery? Yes, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's occasions when you can close a deal before you've even walked through the door. That's the best. But there's other occasions, absolutely. And, and you're a fool if you don't do that if you have the opportunity. But there are other occasions where I've been ushered into a room and just told to get on with it with, with the CEO, CFO, and CLO in there. And in that scenario, they're looking at me as a salesperson. This guy's just trying to punt me something. And I then have to get them to, to realize that actually I'm here to help you out. And the way to do that, one of the best ways to do that is with expertise. So. Yeah, that's the sixth question. So we'll do that and then we'll come back. Because I think that there's an interesting thing that you've captured in the book that's worth noting. And that is this idea of the role of a peer. And I, I continually yeah. tease sales audiences that you only need two things to be a trusted advisor. You need trust and you need advice. And so if you don't have the advice, you're just trusted. And But trusted with what? Not the future of my company because you don't know anything about that. So that, that makes yeah. it difficult for me to, to do that. So I, I just want to ask you about the mindset of the peer and what I see, some salespeople, they want to be subservient. They want to say, it's my job. They ask me for information, so I give them information. They ask me to do this, so I do that. And they don't really have any control of the sales process because they don't see themselves as a peer. And so if you don't see yourself as a peer, what are you projecting to a prospective client? So tell me about that role of the peer and when you're sitting down with people, and you've done this with people in the financial situation where there's multi-million dollar outcomes that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, it's, there isn't any, any other way. I don't, I don't know. I can't give you an alternative other than my competition when they were coming in, you know, so there were several occasions where we do these, we call beauty parade pitches and we'd be lined up and there'd be six people from the competition sitting in the, in the reception area. And I'm sitting there on my own and uh, we're waiting to go in. And really it's because the sales professional well, they're bricking it. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're absolutely, they're finished. I know they're finished before I've even walked in because I know the dynamic of that meeting. When I walk out having laid 15 landmines, that they're going to be going in trying to recover what, not only recover what I've done, but they're all going to be trying to go, no, I'll answer that. No, I'll answer that. No, I'll answer that. So experience told me that that wasn't the best way to do these presentations. So I, I saw this dynamic and I took advantage of it, Anthony. True, true, <laughs> That's my job. True story. I was competing against <laughs> the largest staffing industry in the world. We were a small company competing for a multi-million dollar contract. And we walked out of the meeting and my competitor had six people 
and they were having a prayer meeting before they went in to do the presentation. So they were in a circle praying, and I just thought, you, you can pray to the gods of, of uh, sales, but you know you have to do the work because they're not going to give it to you. I thought they're going to need that prayer because I felt the same it's, way. I walked out after having a meeting where it was very clear we'd done all the work, understood the client's business. We had nothing but responses to, we actually went around and met them all individually, collected all their needs, came back into a room and told them exactly how we were going to get them what they want. And I just thought there's all the prayers in the world aren't going to save you from this one. You've got to know. And they didn't do that work. And when we met with people, they hadn't met with anybody else. No one spent the time, even though it wasn't, it wasn't an arm's length RFP. It was a like, you can do whatever you want. They still didn't do the work. I never felt hope featured I, I hope didn't feature in what i did i look it, to, in my mind it's very simple it's binary i have a product that's very relevant to you it adds value you have a great need based on what you've just told me let's get the order right if for the purists now i'm the best guy in the industry for it here's my legacy here's what i know here's what i do how else can i demonstrate that to you and it's either a yes or a no past there it's not a please <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that that never that, that never featured in my mind. So if you want to choose, and I'm, I say this without an air of arrogance about me, I, I don't mean what I'm about to say to come across in any way in that way. But if you want to choose an inferior person to run it, I'll dedicate my life to this. I will give you all of my moral compass, everything that's in me. I, I ensure you this transaction will go correctly. If you want to choose a lesser person or you think they have a better option for you, Fair enough. No problem at all. I respect that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's, uh, you know, when you, when you don't have that neediness about you and, and I genuinely didn't because I genuinely felt like I was the best option, even if my product wasn't quite as good, the fact that I'm hosting it and the fact that I'll give you the service that you want, not the one that I want to give you, I'll give you the service that you want means that, that I can ensure that it won't go wrong. I'm going to attribute that to another attribute that you have in your book that I think is worth emulating. You're not needy if you're always prospecting. I mean, if you're, <laughs> you, you don't end up being needy because you have enough to take care of whatever you have in the way of your personal goal without having to have any one particular deal. doesn't matter. You can lose, right. you can lose multiple deals and it won't have any impact. So I want to I go to talk about the telephone. I want to talk about right now there's a war going on <laughs> on LinkedIn specifically and I think the tide has turned and everyone is still behind the tide. There was the concept of social selling and inbound. And, and I'm a, a guy who believes that everybody has a piece of the truth, but it's partial. Should you have LinkedIn as a tool? Sure. Should you use inbound yep. marketing channels? Sure. But this, that side of the argument, the social selling folks have always been adamant that you should never cold call. But the people who suggest that you should cold call never say, don't do anything else. They never say, like, only cold call, never ask for referrals, never go to network meetings, never show up at conferences, never go and connect with people on LinkedIn. They never say never. So we have one side of the argument that's saying never, never cold call, never interrupt. And then we have the other side saying, in the great history of human commercial relationships and interactions, We've continued to add tools that allow us to do that. And you should take all of the tools, not some of the tools. But in my experience, the phone is still the fastest and most effective way to create new opportunities. It's still the fastest and most effective. And I, 
I'm not saying that LinkedIn's not good. I've won deals on LinkedIn. I've gotten speaking gigs off of Twitter. I mean, that Twitter, I didn't see as a channel. It's a channel. I get it. But why should people get over their fear of picking up the telephone? And what should they do to get over that fear faster so that they don't ignore the toolkit that's probably going to give them speed to revenue and speed to results faster than any other tool? I just don't see any of it as... I don't see it as a phone or as as a email. I just see it as a way of communicating and I'll use whichever one is the most appropriate. I sometimes hear about social selling, you know, like it's some sort of revelation that we're researching our customers now. Do you think I walked into a boardroom 10 years ago without knowing my customer? It was and, harder and to it, do. Yeah. Well, you say that, but it was harder to do on LinkedIn. But People have industry news sources. Right. I mean, my, my, mine were bankers, I, the Financial Times, Merger Markets, Avention, all of the products that supported it. I had an unlimited source of research. Yeah, but and, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just saying the execution of it, you know, to have to go read the business journals, to, to go and do the research, when now it's yeah. so much faster. But it wasn't that yeah, we were doing it. It was just slower. Yeah. Yeah, it was slower. But it was slower. Like in my, my market was quite a closed market. So- we sort of knew what was going on. We, we, it was easier to, to get the information because there's so many banking systems. So, so but in terms of, of getting hold of someone, why would you want to not get hold of someone? How many senior investment bankers are you going to find on social? I, I don't know any. So there's only one way to get to them. And that is, in my opinion, there's, there's more than one way, but the most effective way is through a warm referral. So you phone someone up that knows them and you ask for an introduction to them. They then get hold of them and you then call them. That, that is how to get hold of, in my opinion, the most senior players. So if you're not speaking to people, you're not selling things in that regard. You know what frustrates me about social selling? I mean, is that you constantly feel like you're walking on eggshells. You're scared to say anything. But, but the reality is, yes, if somebody decided to enter this market with an inbound sales strategy and they came up against someone like me, I would demolish them by speaking to people. I just would. That's how I feel about it. It's just funny how you say that, by speaking to people. And that's it. And there's just so much, I think. And you know, I'm, I'm a person who believes that we have a digital transformation coming around sales. There's, there's going to be a digital... I don't yeah. think it's going to be social selling. I think this is just paving the cow paths. You know, we, we already have these trails. Now we're just using this. I think that there's going to be a more fundamental change that occurs over time. And I'm looking at that and I'm looking at the fact that you can create intimacy at scale and you can manage more relationships now and you can serve more people by leveraging silicon chips to do yeah. even more good work across yeah. a broader number of people. So I think that that's an important thing that we're recognizing. But I, I think that this just the fundamental thing that you said, I'm just going to talk to people. And there's all the <laughs> rules about first you have to connect and then they have to connect and then they have to open up and you have all these things. When a lot of times you call people and you're right into it, and if you have chops and if you know things, yeah. you're face-to-face -face immediately. And I just think that the speed with the That's telephone is, is still faster. And I, I also think that the speed is going to change in another way. Like you and I, right now, people are listening to this, but I'm looking at you over Skype. And at yeah. some point, everything's going to be video because we can yeah. do it and it's so cheap. And if you don't like calling people, how are you going to feel about sending them a video message or popping up on their phone with your face right there. And, and that's eventually where we're heading is that we're not going to use 
asynchronous kind of stuff like email when we don't have to. We like text better. Why? It's not really asynchronous. You know that this phone is in somebody's left hand when you text them and you know they got it because the phone's never not in their left hand. It's always in yeah, their left hand. So that's right. I think that we're going to go through this transformation, but I like your, your simplification of, look, I'm just going to go and talk to people. And talking to people creates opportunity faster than going through a lot of things that make you feel like you're warming it up, but you're really warming you up. They're no warmer. They're no warmer uh, because you connected on LinkedIn. I believe that you, that certainly in this world, you are really, I mean, I believe in my head, I probably aren't right, but in my, in my psyche, I'm no more than one degree of separation away from anybody. And I also believe that people don't know what they know that could help me. And my job is to get out of them to find out or show them that they can help me. So I once had to call into uh, the board of a theatre group, and I don't know anybody in the theatre groups. I sat there with a blank piece of paper and thought, I just don't know what I'm doing. And I sat there for about 20 minutes. I thought, this is ridiculous. This isn't doing anything. Looking online, I'm at a dead end. So I just started calling people. And it turned out after about the 30th phone call in my book, random people, that someone knew someone whose brother worked for in the theatre group that knew someone. It was four degrees away. And I ended up getting a meeting with the biggest theatre group in the world. It takes practice, Anthony. People don't know this. I don't think people realise that they have this resource in their hand that they can leverage. And I think the best salespeople leverage that. I'm going to attribute it to something completely different. I just think you're pig-headed. I just think you're going to keep dialing phone numbers until somebody gives you something. (laughs) Begging. I just think you're 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 just pig-headed, so you keep calling and. You don't feel bad about it. And that, that, I don't that, feel bad about it. No. no, and that sort of pig-headedness, I tell people it's one of my greatest attributes is just being too dumb to know I should quit. I'm just too dumb to know that. And so you just keep making the calls and eventually you have a connection. And I'm good for it in return. I, I love getting random calls. Do us a favor, Lee. And they say, yeah, all right, no problem. Let me see if I can piece that together for you. I, I enjoy, you know, and I think that's probably what great sales people do as well. They enjoy it. I enjoy that chase that piecing it all together i enjoy the thrill of making the call i almost enjoy the rejection but i almost think oh here we go let's get another obstacle to get over so you know and 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 i don't take that on i don't take that as as like oh i'm gonna cry on my pillow today it's a game (laughs) right it's a game you know and and if you look i i've been writing about how much selling is like the mma I mean, nobody in the MMA who's a champion is undefeated. They're five and five. You know, you don't, you don't win every time. It's not like football. You can, in the United States, real football in the United States, I'm talking about American football. Oh, real football. Yeah. Well, the one where you throw, the one with your hands, that one. Yeah, that's one. Yeah. The one that's more like rugby for you. In that game, you can be a championship team and win the Super Bowl and lose five games. It it just, it just works that way. Well, the book is called the number one bestseller. And I enjoyed the book very much. It's a bit of an autobiography with a lot of key lessons. And I like the summations that you have at the end. And I wanted to pull some of those out for people. So we'll point people there. Where do you want people to go to find out more about you? And then how do we get the new research paper? Lee Bartlett, bestseller.com. It's all on there. The book's on there. The research paper's on there. I went out to a handful of multinational corporations and asked them, how has social selling and digital networks impact your businesses over the last five years? And how do you see it impacting them in the next couple of years? And I really got under the skin. I actually interviewed nine. I spent nine full days with companies, global heads of sales, and really started to understand a spread 
of what we're calling digital transformation and how sales teams are adapting. So that's on the website. It's free to download. And the book, please check it out. Send me a review. I'd appreciate it. All right, good. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you, Anthony. That was Lee Bartlett, and you can find him at LeeBartlettBestseller.com. You'll find that in the show notes. His book is called Number One Bestseller. Do pick it up and absolutely give it a read and be open to challenging yourself to take actions that you may have previously feared. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at TheSalesBlog.com, where I write and publish every day. You can also find me at YouTube.com forward slash Anarino, where I record a daily video blog every single day. And when you're there, do hit the subscribe button. If you found value in this podcast, help me share it with other people by going out to iTunes and giving it a five-star review and putting some notes there so that other people can find their way to this content. Until next time, this is Anthony Anarino. I will see you back here in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.